On this week's Behind the Idea, we take a last look at JD.com, at least for now. We speak with Mithra Forensic Research, who published a prescient, bearish call on the company last May. One of the topics we hit was JD's investments in other Chinese e-commerce companies. So in a way, they're buying revenue by some of these investments. You can, there's a debate as to whether or not you know, that's a good or bad thing. But the other thing about this is JD is not very good at making the investments. And they tell you that themselves in their financial statements. Then we got into the big topic of what makes China stories different than other markets. And so when I hear lots of people say, oh, well, you're being unfair because you're picking on Chinese companies and you're not looking at the German companies, that's not true. But the fact of the matter is the reason that some of the Chinese frauds get so much press is because the amount of the loss is often so much greater. In some cases, the companies don't even exist. There's a consistent theme in this week and last week's episode on JD, the need to do the work. This week's guests did the work, just like last week's, but their work led them to different conclusions, including a direct link between the accrual accounting questions and the underlying business. So should investors be concerned? Have a listen on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. We're going back to JD.com one more time today. As a quick review, JD.com is a leading e-commerce company in China. It had a terrible 2018. Last week, we spoke with a JD.com bull, Lester Go, about why he thinks the future is still bright for the company. This week, we're speaking with Mithra Forensic Research, a Seeking Alpha author who wrote a prescient bearish thesis on the company in May of last year, before the bottom really fell out. I'm going to ask him about the concerns he raised in that article and what the longer-term outlook is for the stock and other China e-commerce companies in his view. Before we get started, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Neither of us have any positions in any stocks that are going to be mentioned. You can subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts, and if you have the chance to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, even if it's a negative review, we really appreciate it as it helps other investors find this podcast. Okay, Mithra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. So let's just start with the basics. You wrote a bearish thesis in May, as I said. What's your current view on JD? They just reported their Q4. It was well-received by the market. What do you think on the company right now? Right now, I'm actually uh, sort of still uh, of the same opinion, which is I think a fair price is about $24 a share. But I'm actually thinking that once the company actually reports, you know, its full year of results in more detail, that based on what I see, there is a likelihood that I may actually come down on that. And the reason is, is that some of the things that I raised in the initial report from May, as you, you pointed to, are still things that bother me. So for instance, we see that year on year, the company has grown revenue by 27.5%. One of my big concerns is what percent of that is being driven by financing. We also see that the company is reporting in the most recent results at the, at the high level, it's showing some pretty good operating cash flow. But then when you net that out using the, um, the credits, uh, or the, the cash flows that they're getting from JD digits or formerly JD finance, what you see is that the cash flow has actually deteriorated. So what I want to do is get a bit more detail 
from the, the fuller disclosures so that I can actually have a better view. But I suspect that my view, based on just what I saw in the, the fourth quarter report, my view may actually either hold at 24 or go slightly lower. Okay, interesting. I want to get into those concerns specifically, but first I wanted to, from a generalist, high-level view, i.e. my view, I guess, you said 24 was a fair price in May. You raised concerns that we'll get into around the accounting and sort of the, what that means. But it seemed like this, the stock last year was really driven lower by concerns over U.S.-China trade and what that means for Chinese companies, for the economy there. And also the, obviously the Richard Liu scandal, the fact that he was accused of rape, it was then dropped, but still it drove questions about the immediate future of the company and also about his control. And so I guess, what did you make of, as you're watching this play out, you've put out a price target of 24, which the company actually dropped below in November or December. What did you make of last year? How did that connect to your thesis in your view? Was it, did you view it as, a sideshow, or did you view it as validatory of what your argument was and why? Well, when I look back on it, one of the things I did was I took the the company's uh, share price over the last, well, since I actually put out that report in May, and I compared it to, say, uh, to Baba. And I, I looked at the share price uh, from May 1st through to uh, to today. And, and what I noted was that, you know, immediately after my report came out, there was, yeah, initially uh, the share price dropped slightly. But then what happened was both JD and Baba climbed quite a bit, climbed almost about 6% in June. And then after June, what happened was both JD and Baba started to decline quite significantly. In fact, what wound up happening is JD fell to probably about 17% in August. Baba wasn't quite as, as bad. Baba fell probably around, I don't know, uh, 12% or something like that. And so what I thought was at the August point, the market was sort of paying attention to what, what, what either I had said in that report or some of the, the interim results that were coming out after that. The CEO issue, the CEO's arrest didn't happen until September. And that's when JD fell 30%. When I'm saying 30%, it's 30% from the May 1st price. So the, the company had already started to, you know, experience a, a depression in its share price at least after, after June. And so do I give myself some credit or do I, do I take some credit for actually sort of being prescient in, in sort of predicting that? Yes. But only up until I think the September timeframe, which is, I think the, the CEO was arrested around September 4th or September 5th of 2018. And that's when the share price dropped even further. In terms of thinking about the, the trade issues, I mean, you know, JD, its customer base is Chinese. It's, it's uh, cost base is Chinese. And I know that there are all these concerns, but if you look at JD and Baba just as, as, as they stand right now compared to say the May 1st price, what you see is that right now, JD is kind of flat to where it was in May 1st of, of, of 2018. Uh, I think it's down like about 1%. But if you look at the same numbers for, I'm sorry, for, Baba is down about 1%. But if you look at the same number for JD, what you see is the company is about 24% less than what it was 
yeah, from May 1st of, of 2018. So yes, there's been a lot of other activity and a lot of other noise that's happened around this. But I think some of it has been related to uh, the issues that I raise. But I think going forward over the next several months, I think based on the, the company's financial reports, particularly as it relates to the financing and the, and the cash flows, I think what you'll see is that the company will, uh, will continue to go down back to that either 24 or lower price, depending on what happens with, uh, with their full, full, full results and, and how that's disclosed. Okay. Got it. That's yeah. Interesting to sort of distill each of those different effects and how they might have played out the. So one of the th issues I want to get into the accounting issues that you discussed and one of the issues you, you brought up was the delayed payment cycle. Uh, I don't have the article right in front of me, but I think you said pointed out that they seem to be stretching the payment terms for suppliers, which often gets, when you look at these e-commerce companies, they talk about this sort of negative working capital funding the rest of the business. That was something that our guest last week, Lester brought up as a positive, the ability to, to just kind of keep funding growth. Obviously, if things turn, this becomes a double-edged sword, but we don't have a 20F yet. We, we don't have a cash flow statement in the, in the eight or six K or whatever it was that came out for the quarter. But do you, what do you make of whether this dynamic is continuing? And could you sort of even more generally elaborate why you feel that this is a bad thing for JD? Why this is not not a sign of business strength, but instead is something to be concerned about. Yeah, let me take the, the latter part of that question first. So why should you be concerned about it? I, I get that point that, you know, negative cash flow is a fantastic thing. Uh, I agree with that. The issue I have is when I look at businesses from a forensic accounting perspective and from a fraud perspective, one of the ways that companies are able to report better results, particularly on the cash flow line or the cash flow from operations line, is that they can make a very easy decision about when and whether to pay their vendors, which will actually improve their cash flow. So some companies just have that naturally. They have a negative cash flow uh, structure. They are able to extend payables out because they have leverage over their vendors. That's a great thing. The problem I was identifying with JD was that this is a company that's been around for a while and theoretically it would already have established that vendor relationship and that, that leverage over vendors. But what you see at JD is what I suspect is an attempt by the company to improve its results by using its discretion over when and how it pays its vendors. And so what I did was I calculated the day's payables outstanding. Now, I will say at the top of this that the way that I calculate this is slightly different than, a, than the company will and probably many other analysts will. But I basically just take the accounts payables divided by the revenue multiplied by 365 if I'm looking at a yearly number. If you look at that, I highlighted in the, in the report uh, on Seeking Alpha, the, the last several years of those day's payables outstanding. And what you see is, is that as of 2017, the day's payables outstanding was about 75 days. But if you look back in time, you could see that going back to 2013 and 2014, those numbers were in the 50s. 
So 52 days in 2014, about 58 days, I believe, in 2013. They had grown a little bit in 2015 and 16, and they were in the, the low 60s, so about 61. So, so if you make that argument that a company is, uh, you know, experiencing negative cash flow, it has um, this great leverage over its vendors, what you tend to see is those numbers tend to be relatively stable, meaning the company has established itself as, you know, the, the, the player with the leverage, and they set that that payables uh, sort of time frame. They say we're going to pay our vendors in 50, 60, in some cases, 75 days. The problem that I'm seeing here is that there's far too much volatility. And so what I was raising in this report was, even though this company had in the prior four or five years had been in the 50s and 60s, all of a sudden it reports better cash flow in 2017. And a significant portion of that was related to the mere fact that it had increased its payables or days payables outstanding to 75 days. So what am I seeing right now? Based on the most recent 6K, what you can see is, is that the company has gone back to the 60s range. So it's about uh, 63 days. So it has come down from the 75 days from 2017. But the 63 days is still quite high uh, compared to, say, if you were looking at it from 2013 or 14. So that's why I say I'm, I'm still concerned about the cash flow. It has improved from when I first wrote the report in May of 2018, but that 63 days is still a lot higher than what the company had been reporting in prior years. And as I said, if the company is, you know, a, a, a large company and has established itself, given all of the vendors, the thousands of vendors that it has, it tends to keep a relatively stable number in terms of those days payables outstanding. And that 63 is still higher than, than you know, the average that uh, the company had established in the prior five years. And so that's why I'm still concerned about that. So let me, I, I want to drill in on a couple of things there just to make sure I'm getting it. You could argue, I guess, you could argue that that's a sign of growing leverage, of growing importance, which may or not makes may or may not make sense because JD has been an established company. But I wanted to sort of float that as a potential positive. But then it sounds like the concerns you're raising are that this changing number is pro assuming that it's that positive doesn't play out, this changing number could be bad because it could be a sign of just poorly run, inconsistently run business model that you time that you pay your suppliers varies, which is just not not super confidence building. Or it could be a sign that they're trying to either juice the numbers from a perspective of we just want to squeeze out more cash flow or other sort of question marks. Or I actually I think those are probably the the concerns that would raise to mind. Is that the right way of thinking about why you're concerned is because the inconsistency might mean something else? Correct. That's it. So, so your point exactly at, at the outset of that, which is yes, JD has been around for some time. I get the point that the company continues to grow, but if you look at the company in 2013, 14, 15, you'd see that the company had thousands upon thousands of vendors and the company was even then a very large company. It has grown in size since then. But it was a very large company. This was an established player even then. And back then, the company had a relatively stable number as it related to days payables outstanding. So my question then becomes, 
what has changed in 2017 that all of a sudden you have now moved from 50 days and low 60 days of, of days payables outstanding to 75 days, which is a significant number. When I did this and did the calculation for the report in May, I think the impact was about 26, I'm sorry, 22 billion RMB. So it was a significant number. So I, I, I don't, I don't buy the argument that the company is, you know, is becoming, because it's so much bigger, it now has even more leverage, meaning that it could actually grow that leverage by, a, a, you know, somewhere on the order of about 15 days, just, just because it had gotten slightly bigger in the last couple of years. So my concern is that the company was trying to juice its cash flow numbers by basically delaying payments. What they, what they wound up doing is probably making up those payments in the, you know, in this current year, but they, they showed an improvement in their cash flow simply by turning off the, 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 the payments to their vendors. And that for me was a concern and, and is still a slight concern for me as I look at the, the numbers as they're showing them based on the, uh, the most recent full year, uh, data that we have. Okay. Got it. The, the other, I think, main concern ultimately you bring up profitability which i think is we talked about that with a bull and the question of when when they achieve free cash flow growth i think that's obviously a fundamental issue and and your sort of view on the runaway will vary depending on which your analysis but i'm curious about your other big point which was that revenue growth seems to be dependent on company financing which to me seemed like a potentially even more enduring point because ultimately the cash flow dynamics in theory if there's there's real revenue growth that will sort itself out and this if there's not real revenue growth then there's a lot of other problems so could you explain a little bit more about what concerns you about what's going on with the potential financing of revenue growth and why it concerns you and then Again, based on what we have to work on from the most recent reports, whether you're seeing this persist as we, you know, nine or 10 months later. Sure. So again, similar to, uh, to payables, uh, you know, you will have people say, well, look, there's nothing wrong, you know, per se with a company offering financing. I agree with that. My concern is not just that the company is offering financing. My concern is what percent of your revenue growth is actually made up by your own financing. So basically what I'm, what I'm asking is, is your growth truly organic or is it just being juiced by the fact that for you to get a higher revenue number, you just go out to your customers and you say, I just give you more credit and you come back through the front door and you help me increase my revenue number. And so to, to dig into that, what I did was I started to look at based on the data I had, look at the growth in the financing. Because at the time, before this JD uh, uh, finance spinoff, you could actually see the growth in the financing. It was actually on JD's financial statements. And what I was noticing is that if you looked at the Delta year on year in the growth of financing, that a significant portion of what they were reporting in growth in revenue was actually coming as a result of merely them offering financing to their, to their customers. What I would like to see is that, yes, they are offering financing and there is some growth related to that, but it's not a large percentage. What I was noticing was that somewhere on the order of about 40% of the company's reported revenue growth year on year was actually made up by financing. 
Now, some people will say, well, what's wrong with that? The, the issue with that is, one, the company is essentially able to juice its results. The other issue with that is if a company wanted to improve on its own juicing of the results, what it could do is it could just become more lax in offering that credit. So it offers credit to more people who are probably not credit worthy, or it gives more credit to people who already have credit, but who are, who might not be the best, the best people to offer, to be offering that credit to. The, the, the concern I have now is this. Now that JD Finance has been spun off, we have less insight into how much is actually going through the financing, meaning it's off balance sheet now. We don't see that. So right now, I couldn't do that analysis for you because I don't have the full, fuller picture of what's happening with the financing. What I do see and what you can see from the most recent 6K report is that the financing that is netted out of the, uh, the cash flow uh, report that they have, so this very small snippet uh, that they give us on cash flow, what you can see is, is that a significant amount of cash flow uh, in relation to the the financing is actually coming out of of their results. So I'm uh, looking at the full year cash flow for 2018. What you see is is that the company reports cash flows from operating activities from continuing operations of about 20 billion RMB, but about 7.4 billion of that uh, is netted out. It's taken out because it's related to the JD digits, which is formerly JD Finance. If you look at that compared to 2017, that number was only about 289 million. So what we now have is a huge ramp up in the impact of the financing. So just from a cash flow perspective, what you see is, is that the, the financing is a, is a, a very material portion of their business and it's a material portion of their revenue. And so when I look at their cash flow report, even this, this sort of what five line cash flow report that you have in the 6K, what you'll see is, is that in 2017, if you net out uh, the impact of, of the JD digits, what you find is that the company had cash flow of or operating cash flow of about 29 billion. When you net it out for the impact of JD digits in 2018, the company has cash flow of closer to 13 billion. Uh, and so, so that's my big concern with this financing. One is that it's a significant portion of revenues. Uh, it's driving a lot of the growth in revenue. So even though at a top line level, the company can say we've grown 27 and a half percent year over year. What you have to also see is that what's driving that growth is that the company is offering credit. And what we can't see is who they're offering that to, how many of those people are falling behind in those payments how much of those credits that they've offered are now being written down because what you then get to is only this, this sort of one liner in the cash flow statement that shows the impact from decreasing digits related credit products included in the operating cash flow. But that number is now 7 billion RMB. Uh, and so I'll be looking for the fuller cash flow statement to get a better view. But, but that's my major concern about, uh, about the financing. Right. Okay. That's, I was going to say that was all, it sounded like an RMB and looking at the, the, for anybody listening, I think you're referring to page seven on the 6K. It looks like where they have that impact from decreasing JD digits related credit products in the, in the cash, a brief cash flow statement. What, so I'm, we talked about last week, I talked 
with Lester about the JD Finance, the spinoff he viewed as a sign of positive capital allocation of being able to raise capital and show that sort of good shareholder alignment. JD Digits is not publicly traded and is not, you don't, you're not going to get JD Digits or JD Finance's statements. Is that right? So, which is why you're saying it's hard to know exactly what's going on there. Yes, exactly. So that that's why I think the two of us have, have differing views. So from his perspective, he's right. Look, if you're able to spin it off and get more cash and, you know, you can claim that that is a way of, uh, you know, maximizing capital and, and doing the right things for shareholders. From my perspective, based on what I'd already seen from this company, meaning here's a company who seems to be driving or deriving uh, a significant portion of its revenue from financing, it's rather convenient that now I no longer get to see that. Uh, and so, you know, and I won't even get to see it, uh, you know, in any kind of financial, because as you said, the company is not public. And so that data is completely wiped away from me. So yes, you, you can have that view. And if I were coming from this cold, maybe I would say that. But having seen that this company is deriving so much of its cash flow from financing, and now all of a sudden saying, oh, by the way, we're not going to give you that information anymore because we spun it off is suspect for me. I, I can see why the company would want to do that from the perspective of, of generating more cash flow, but I can also see it from the perspective of, hey, I don't want you to know what's going on because you're already raising concerns about what's happening with uh, the financing and how much of the how much of my revenue is derived from my financing. I also don't want you to see whether or not those people are paying on time and whether or not I have to write off a lot of what I've already issued in terms of credits to these customers. And so spinning it off serves that purpose as well. It's interesting because you, the, the sort of financing fueled growth is a theme that comes up in a lot of markets. I, I, stories that come to mind are John Deere was sort of the bearish thesis for a long time. And this cycle has been that a lot of their growth has come from financing tractors. And then also cons is the other sort of big story that comes to mind in the U.S. as a retail story where they're, they're, they're doing a lot of high APRs financing of sales and i'm curious if in this case the the twist it seems to me is that like we just talked about that they've spun off the financing arm and you don't have a lot of visibility into it but also it seems to me like it, it does is there the same dynamic in china because i think one of the things that is persisted that has allowed those companies deer is still doing very well as a stock Cons has kind of been up and down, but doing okay recently. We're still in a low rate environment. And so if you, that's part of the other sort of core risk, it would seem to me to financing is that you, it's essentially, you know, you're putting up, you're accumulating more risk, but you're putting off the payments and you're hoping, you know, as long as you make enough of those payments, it makes sense. But it, does that, does a low interest rate environment help? create the opportunity for JD to do something like this in your view, or is that not a major factor? Uh, I, I think it helps them. I, I just don't think that, that the, the interest rate issue is really what's, what's driving uh, their, their, their motivation for this. It, the examples you gave, I mean, I would say that what you more often see is in companies like Deere, and I've seen a couple other companies that do this, they, they, they have not spun off their financing business. And so what you do have is you have the ability to examine what that, those credits, what that credit is so that you can see whether or not people are paying. 
in an, in a, you know, higher interest rate environment or an increasing interest rate environment, you could actually monitor, you know, whether or not the company is writing off some of that, some of that, that credit that they've given uh, to those customers. In this case, we don't have that. So yes, I, I would imagine that their argument would be, well, yes, we've got this low interest rate environment. My view is that yes, of course, but, uh, my concern is, that I do not have visibility into something that is driving a significant portion of your revenue. And yes, it will be a greater concern for me when interest rates rise. But th the fact of the matter is, is that because these, this financing uh, piece is growing so dramatically, you don't necessarily need an increasing interest rate environment to actually make this sort of devolve, meaning it doesn't just go bad just because of interest rates. It could be that you're just offering financing and you're offering credit to people who are not worthy of that or who can't pay it back. And so what I really want to see is the information that allows me to determine how well you are monitoring and how well you are, you are, um, you're, you're managing this, this financing process. Because regardless of what happens with interest rates, if you're offering this credit to people who are not able to pay it back, you know, today's interest rate or an interest rate a higher a year from now is not going to be the difference. What I want to be able to see is who are you offering this to? Are they paying back? And if they aren't, what's the impact of those, of those write-offs and how material that is to this business? Right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that's sort of an interesting twist. And I wanted to get into sort of building on that. It, it's not exactly the same angle, but I'm curious what you make of, so they spun off JD Finance, now called JD Digits. They spun off, I think, JD Logistics as well, but own a stake in that. And they also own a bunch of equity stakes. And when we had originally sort of talked about JD, we talked about the article we were using was by an author named Long Hill Road Capital, who argued that you should give the company, you should just net those out the same way you would short-term invest, investments in bonds or whatever else. And I thought that was interesting to think about why JD.com would invest in all these. Why would they hold material stakes in these companies? And sort of it's related to, I guess, the, the financing stuff because you think about, okay, why would a e-commerce company have a financing arm? Why would they essentially play a little bit of a role of a lender? And so I'm curious what you think of, the, what, what do you make of just these investments in general that aren't obviously driving towards JD's bottom line? Finance, JD Finance and JD Logistics, I guess, are probably a little bit different than investments in things like BitAuto, Tunio, I think they have a stake in VIP shop, which I want to ask you about specifically afterwards. But what, what do you make of the fact that they hold these sort of investments in other Chinese companies? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things going on here. One of them is it's the sort of buying a bit of a halo effect to me, which is, you know, JD has a, a good name. If we uh, buy, a, uh, you know, a share of, although BitAuto, I can't say is a, is a, a halo company at this point, but buying a piece of a company that has a halo around it or has a, a good name around it, you know, may bring us some additional benefit. I think that's a, a part of it. My concern is, is that, and I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but what I was seeing in a lot of these agreements, particularly with, with Vips and, and, and Tunio, was that the agreements uh, essentially resulted in the company setting up arrangements where 
based on these uh, investments that a certain amount of revenue would actually flow back to the company. So in a way, they're buying revenue by some of these investments. You can, there's a debate as to whether or not, you know, that's a good or bad thing. But the other thing about this is JD is not very good at making the investments. And they tell you that themselves in their financial statements. I'm looking at the 20F of 2017. This is page F6. One line item, share of results of equity investees. This is what the company is showing in its P&L of its results of what it has done in terms of uh, the the gains that it's it's reporting as a result of the investments it's made in these companies. What you'll see is that consistently, year on year on year, the company loses money in those investments. Uh, and it loses it to the tune of somewhere between two and three billion RMB every year. Yes, 2017 was an improvement. It was only two billion as opposed to closer to three billion in 2016 and 15. But the company isn't very good at actually making investments. And the bit auto uh, example is probably, you know, one of the, the highlights of that. But it, it goes back to the question, which I think a lot of, you know, American companies sort of debated many years ago, which is the value of a, a conglomerate. I mean, if, if that's what they're thinking, that maybe we should be more like a conglomerate and we should be investing in lots of different businesses and offering to some extent a portfolio. Uh, you know, you can buy a portfolio of Chinese companies by buying JD. They're not very good at it. And that was, I think, one of the, the debates that U.S. conglomerates were, were dealing with, which is why should we be investing in you, GE or whomever, to get a portfolio? Why can't we do that on our own? Why can't we investors, you know, do that and, and build a portfolio on our own as opposed to expecting you, GE, to go out and build a portfolio of companies? I think it works the same here. Do we trust JD to go out and to build a portfolio for us? Or do we do it ourselves? I think the answer is in the, the financials that JD provides itself, which is they don't do a really good job of investing as, as based on, on the share of results in equity investees. So, so my answer is I, I'm not particularly pleased with the fact that they're doing that. They continue to, to, to do it and they do it to the, to the point where it has a, a serious and material negative impact on their results. That's I like that 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 reminder because we do we do sometimes view those abstractly without thinking about either the conglomerate aspect you're thinking about or the fact that yeah if they own these positions they can lose money on them you know in the U.S. that's something that's come up Warren Buffett has talked about having to reflect on equity uh, changes in the P and L but I think that's that's. Ultimately, if you're going to do it, you need to be getting something out of it. The, the question is the, the argument that we heard last week was that there's some strategic value in hearing from different verticals. And so I want to sort of drill in specifically on a company that you've covered for, for, for seeking out in the past is VIP shop, which is something that you, you've raised about accounting issues, about overbuilding, et cetera. And so, what I want to ask is, first of all, let's just use that as an example, I guess. First of all, is there something that the that JD can benefit from in terms of strategically leveraging a relationship with VipShop, which is more apparel-focused, et cetera? Is there anything you can see in terms of potential synergies from something like that? I'm just as a counterpoint to what you raised. I'd agree. I think from a, from a, you know, if we're talking about, you know, businesses in this space, 
Yeah, there is a, a sort of synergy, synergistic uh, opportunity for the two of them. I, I would agree with that. My concerns are more around the, the financials of both companies. But yes, uh, from a high level view, yes. If you're thinking about this from, you know, two e-commerce companies, one that actually focuses more on apparel and the benefits that that would draw to JD, yes, I could completely see that as a reasonable reason to have an investment in it. Got it. Okay. So I want to go so further into VipShop because you had raised serious concerns about them. And one of the things we talked about last week was that you can still look at US companies. We've already sort of talked about finance driven revenue concerns, but you know, you can talk about companies like GE or Bank of Ozarks were the companies that we used last week as an example. It's very Canada's a ju- jurisdiction where a lot of the companies that are listed there concerns are raised. Most recently, Germany with what's going on with Wirecard and Carson Block's piece, Carson Block of Muddy Waters, his piece in the uh, Forbes, I believe he wrote it, about how the lax environment in Germany is compared to other places. But I'm just curious, how much do you think when you come into these accounting concerns for JD, which is, I think if you, of the bellwethers in China, you're probably talking Alibaba, Baidu is up there, Tencent. And then JD's, if not top tier, second tier China, US listed company. How do you, how much of this is a China issue in terms of governance or, or other aspects of the investing climate? And what should investors do when looking at a company like JD to sort of break that down, analyze that, identify opportunities or anything else? So the way that I, I would agree with, with you about the fact that, look, you've got accounting fraud and aggressive accounting in all jurisdictions. You know, fraudsters are everywhere. We can't say that they're they're hiding out in one one particular place or, or one particular country. What is different, though, is that the structure of emerging markets, and right now the you know biggest and you know most interesting emerging market has been China, continues to be, and probably will be for some time. Which is why so many people focus on it. But the types of fraud that occur in Chinese companies tend to be different than those that occur in, in Western markets. The types of frauds that occur in emerging markets tend to be different than those that occur in Western markets. And the reason is, is because the structure of those, those companies are different. In, in the US, in Germany, in Canada, what you're likely to have are companies that are owned by a large number of investors, meaning there is no dominant founder. There is no dominant family that owns 25, 30, 45% of the company. Let's exclude examples of, say, Tesla uh, for the moment. But for the most part, what you have are companies that have a, a, a great dispersion of investors. There is no one dominant player that holds most of the shares. That's very different in emerging markets. In emerging markets, you often, very often, have a founder who is still in the business or has family in the business, uh, owns a large number of shares in the business. And so the types of fraud you see in those markets are going to be different. In the Western markets, what you're going to likely have are what's referred to as accrual accounting frauds, meaning the managers, the way that they enrich themselves is that they go out and they engage in aggressive accounting. They, uh, you know, delay uh, taking, you know, write-offs, which is what's being alleged by GE. Or they uh, don't disclose information that they should be disclosing. So the example is 
why SNAP is uh, involved in uh, an SEC uh, investigation. Or maybe they say something uh, in a tweet that, you know, isn't accurate, uh, which is the, the Tesla example. Those are the sort of Western market types of examples. They're engaging in some kind of accrual accounting or disclosure fraud so that they get a temporary lift in the share price, and that will then benefit to them in the form of stock options and bonuses. Very different in emerging markets. If you've got a founder or a founder's family that owns 25, 30, 40, 50% of the shares outstanding, engaging in a little bit of a cruel accounting fraud will result in, yes, them increasing the share price, yes, but it's not going to be that significant for them. The way that they actually gain in terms of, of, of fraud in, in those markets is they engage in wholesale fraud in terms of, of assets. What they're doing is they're basically um, uh, misappropriating assets in those instances. So what you'll likely see in, in Asia is the founder selling, you know, a very important business line to a, a company that we assume is unrelated to the founder and then later find out that it is. So it's more asset misappropriation. They're taking bits of, of the company or out of the actual invest, uh, the, the investment. Uh, sometimes you'll see the founder, you know, granting loans to himself, or in some cases, what you'll see is related party dealings. And so what you get is you get huge problems in emerging markets related to asset misappropriation, which usually result in, you know, very, very large frauds, huge losses to investors and huge media coverage. And so when I hear lots of people say, oh, well, you're being unfair because you're picking on Chinese companies and you're not looking at the German companies, that's not true. But the fact of the matter is the reason that some of the Chinese frauds get so much press is because the amount of the loss is often so much greater. In some cases, the companies don't even exist. And so the investors are left holding the bag because the founder has absconded with all of the key assets. That was my concern in the, the VIPs report. So what I reported in VIPs was concerns around asset misappropriation, possible uh, related party transactions with companies that are owned by the founder. The JD case is different. I, I wasn't alleging in, the, in, in the, the JD case that they were engaging in misappropriation. What I was saying was that the company was engaging in a very large scale accrual accounting fraud. So accrual accounting being they are using their financing to, to, to juice up their revenues. And also they're using their discretion in when they pay their vendors to juice up their cash flow. But the numbers were quite large. And so that's why I decided to hone, hone in on this particular company. But the, I, I get the argument that, you know, that, that this is happening all over the world. I, I completely understand that. And I agree with that. The issue is though that Chinese companies have historically and emerging markets companies have historically engaged in asset misappropriation, which tend to be larger frauds, which tend to leave uh, investors holding the bag. And those that's why they get so much attention. In this case, though, as I said, uh, JD, from my perspective, was a very large scale, uh, aggressive accounting slash cool accounting fraud. And so so that's why uh, I, I focused on it. But yeah, in, in, emer in emerging markets, this is the concern for investors. It's to be concerned about the potential for an asset misappropriation. Got it. So the sort of immediate follow-up, which I wasn't going to bring up, but comes to mind as you say that, what do you make of Richard Liu? Just what do you make of him? 
his position in JD, his control of the company, his track record, or anything else. What's what do you think about him? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I I don't know him personally or anything like that. But I mean, my my view is that based on on what I've seen, the you know, this is a this is a legitimate business. He's grown that business. The my view is that I think his accounting is aggressive, whether it's him driving it or somebody else driving it. I think the accounting is aggressive. And I think that his his ownership in the company probably crowds out proper governance. The way that the company is structured, the set, the, the setup of the board, he, he has so much control that whether it be Richard Liu or any other company in in emerging market or a Western market, the setup of the company in terms of its corporate governance is lacking. And so it's not a personal view of him, but it's a, a view of how the company is structured. And so, so my view is that uh, if, if I'm an investor and I have even the slightest concerns about some of the accounting, which I've raised here, the next thing that I look at, look at is the corporate governance and the ownership structure. And in this case, the, the, the way that that is set up is, is problematic for me. If I've got concerns about accounting and concerns about corporate governance, that's a double red flag for me because that means that even if there is something going on at the accounting level, that the, the, the players who should be addressing the issues or stopping it or, or mitigating it are not able to, to exercise that control in this situation. So my view of him is not a personal one. It's more along the, along the lines of corporate governance. And I think the corporate governance here is poor. Got it. Okay. Well, do you, are there any companies that stand out to you as counter examples to this trend in China? Uh, companies that seem to be getting it right as far as corporate governance, as far as uh, dispersed ownership or anything else that sort of stands out to you from, from the current ecosystem? Or is your approach generally to look for sort of the companies that have issues and so maybe you haven't come across the positive ones? Yeah, it's more of the latter. So my, my focus is identifying short opportunities almost exclusively. And so uh, I'm, you know, I have a number of, I have a database where I essentially use a number of red flags, both accounting red flags and corporate governance red flags. And I tend to focus and spend my energy digging into the ones that are coming up with those red flags. Uh, and so that's not to say that those companies don't exist, meaning companies that are good companies with great corporate governance in China. But, you know, there are tons of analysts out there who are writing about those companies all the time. And they're, you know, they've, you know, all of the good ones are, I'm sure, you know, they have lots of coverage. What I try to do is to find those companies that are, are, are failing both on a corporate governance scale as well as on an accounting, aggressive accounting or even potentially asset misappropriation level. And so while I think they exist, uh, they're not, I, I don't have a company that I would give at, at the moment that I would say, here's my, my shining example of a, of a, of a Chinese company. It, I'm sure it exists. It's just not where I focus. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So the sort of the last question I have for you then I think is just when you, when you came up with the price target, it looked to me like you basically adjusted for the concerns you had, took the current market pricing as an efficient number and said, okay, but if they had the correct information about what revenue and cash flow would be based on adjusting out the problems with the delayed payment cycle and with the financing of revenue growth, here's where the company's revenue would be. Here's how they should be trading. 
was essentially how I understood it. And I'm just curious if you abstracted that and just took the company fresh, what do you, how would you sort of approach evaluation for this company? Is it something where we like, is there an outlook for profitability? I know you're, you're saying that you may consider changing your, your view of uh, your specific targets of the company once you get fuller financial information. But what if we were to just take value and not the market pricing, how would you sort of think about it? Or what would you look to, how would you look to value JD? Yeah, I mean, ideally, I would love to be able to do a discounted cash flow analysis on the company. But in my world, you know, when you're, when you're looking at companies who have suspect accounting, you know, there, there are very few opportunities for you to sort of place trust in any of the numbers that you get. And so, as you said, it's, it's correct, which is, you know, I, I took the, assume that the market number was efficient at the time and then tried to adjust for what I could estimate the impacts were of the, the revenue juicing up and the cash flow juicing up. But ideally, I would have wanted to do a, a proper uh, discounted cash flow analysis of the company. I guess you can make an argument that you could possibly do some form of um, sum of parts. But to be honest, it, based on what's happened with, say, for instance, JD Digits, formerly JD Finance, you don't really have that opportunity, right? So, you know, I think the, the, the most logical uh, route would be to do some form of discounted cash flow. Okay. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Well, looking for, thank you so much, Mithra. This has been, I, I really enjoyed how you've been able to get into the accounting, which is, I think, where you often focus in your work, but then translate it really nicely into the, what it means, what it implies for the business. And so I'm really, uh, I think there's been a lot to chew on here and a lot of good information. And I'm looking forward to, I, I the big event we're waiting for is, for the 20F to come out and for you to be able to sort of take the the fully updated data and incorporate it into your analysis. Is that sort of, is that correct? Is that what you're waiting on? That's right. That, that, that's exactly right. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, absolutely. Me, me too. I'm, I'm really, I think this is just these, I, I mentioned to you before we chatted, but the Chinese internet companies have a lot of interest on the, on them. And I think there's, I think it may be because you have the aspects of the growth and sort of the revolution that comes from the internet that we see with the US and other countries tech companies. But then you have sort of these concerns of the dominant founder and not that the US companies don't have dominant founders, but there's sort of a different ecosystem. And so it adds a little bit more of a fog around it, which opens up for more questions and more conversations. So thanks so much for coming on. I, I think you added a lot to this and I appreciate you taking your time today. No problem. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed it. We're done with JD, but we're moving on to another hot tech story next week, so watch for that. You can get this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, so if you leave a review, we'd appreciate it if you did so on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. This has been a Seeking Out production. Thank you for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.